Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, and Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from New York, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, and our guest this week is Harold Benink, Professor of Banking and Finance at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. This week, we'll be taking a look at signs that regulators may be easing up on capital requirements, a catch-up on peer-to-peer lending in the UK and internationally, as it comes under more pressure from regulators. And finally, Goldman Sachs, further signs that it's going down market. First, though, to that capital story. And, David, we held the FT Banking Summit. There's the annual get-together of the industry that we hold every December. One of the themes that came up in various forms was around regulatory capital. And there and in subsequent evidence from other people talking around the world, there seemed to be signs that capital requirements may be softening. What did you pick up from last week's event, first of all? So I think the important thing to remember about this is that it's a constant battle. And so things are always moving in one direction or the other. And for many years now... It's been moving away from the banks and in favour of tougher rules. And now there are some signs that the direction of travel may have changed. In Europe, we had the CEO of Unicredit, Jean-Pierre Mustier, talking at the conference. And he was saying that he expects the bank to benefit from these sort of tweaks, quite complex tweaks to capital rules that basically allow them to count some debt as well as equity as towards their capital requirements. And he thinks this is going to be beneficial for the bank and will help pay for a buyback. Just to say that that's the first time I think I'm right in saying that this is a bank putting numbers on new rules, that the CRD5 rules, as you say, that came in in Europe earlier this year, which are themselves transposing Basel IV requirements. But we hadn't known really up till now what the effect would be for banks. Exactly. And then also staying with Basel IV in the US, we had Randy Qualls, the Fed governor in charge of regulation, saying that, yes, the US would implement Basel IV, but that they didn't think that capital levels had to increase at the US banks. And so, you know, this is sort of on both sides of the Atlantic, a sign that regulators are sort of listening to the persistent lobbying from the banks, saying that the sort of higher capital requirements have gone too far and are starting to soften. Now, this first softening might be small, but significant. But if it does show us the direction of travel, it could be a prelude to more easy regulation for banks further down the line. Well, that's a good point to bring in Harold Benning from Tilburg University. Harold, thanks for joining us. You've been studying global banking regulation for many years. What's your sense of where we're at in this cycle and the latest evidence? Well, I guess, in my view, the latest evidence is uh, quite worrying. We shouldn't forget that it's now 11 years ago that we had the great financial crisis, starting with the fall of Lehman Brothers, 
And at that moment, bank capital ratios, for instance, when you look at the leverage ratio, were historically low. They were around 2, 3, 4 percent. And now in Europe, they have moved up to 5, 5.5 percent. But when you look at historical evidence for capital ratios of banks, both in Europe as well as the United States, they typically tended to be much higher. For instance, in the early 1930s, they were still around 50 percent. And that was before we had all the introduction of deposit insurance and too-big-to-fill guarantees. So, indeed, we have made progress during the past decade in raising bank equity capital. But historically speaking, we are far away from the levels we used to have. That's a matter of concern. Just to pick you up on one thing there, you talked about levels of capital being 5 or 6% now. Most people focus on the so-called core equity tier one ratio, which most banks seem to have or be somewhere between 10, 11 and, and, and 13 or 14%. What's the distinction between what you're talking about and those numbers? Well, the so-called leverage ratio is equity capital divided by total assets, while with the core equity tier one ratio, it's based upon the risk-weighted assets. So it's the leverage ratio, this total assets to equity number that you think is the most concerning regardless of the kind of risk weightings that come into play on the CET1? Yes. When the risk weighting methodology was introduced in the Basel II process in a consultative document in 2001, since then there has been a lot of criticism, first from the academic community, that banks may have perverse incentives for underestimating the credit risk profile in order to lower the regulatory capital. And we also know that two years ago, when the Basel III Accord was finalized, what was happening then, there were some flaws built into the methodology of the risk weights because, as the regulators were saying, there was too much gaming, manipulation, and calibration going on. So the risk weighting methodology has some flaws because it contains some potentially perverse incentives for underestimation of credit risk. So the leverage ratio is, I think, a much better indicator, also for reasons of historical comparison. Yes. Well, as you say, maybe there are worrying signs that the direction of travel, as David puts it, on regulation is turning. And given all the concerns around the world, both financial and geopolitical, maybe now is not a great time to be doing that. No, it doesn't seem to me. Risks may be increasing. We know that global debt ratios have increased since the crisis with Lehman Brothers. So global leverage has increased. Global risks are arising. There's all types of potential political instability. Within Eurozone, look at Italy, for instance, but also linked to global leverage. And given the fact that we are still far below historical levels of capital, this is not the right time to stop raising equity capital. So I would prefer that banks, for instance, perhaps they have difficulty in issuing stocks, new shares. But what they could do, of course, is retain profits to a larger extent. Yes, rather than distribute quite so much in terms of dividends. Exactly. Well, Harold, thank you so much for your thoughts on that. It's certainly a topic that's going to keep running for some time. So let's move on to our second topic and a look at the area of peer-to-peer lending. Now, this is obviously one of the areas of the so-called fintech industry that has sprung up, particularly over the last five to ten years. Nick, in the UK, we have new regulations being put in place. Just as we're talking about deregulation in banking, we're talking about tougher regulation in this peer-to-peer area, the non-bank area. What's going on? Yeah, so peer-to-peer, as you mentioned, it was sort of pitched after the financial crisis as a way to kind of revolutionize the market by 
lending in places that banks didn't want to and simultaneously being a way for sort of retail investors to make higher returns than they would through traditional savings accounts without taking on quite as much risk as they would investing in the stock market. And these entities, they don't take any of this risk on their balance sheets. They don't intermediate between borrowers and depositors in the kind of traditional bank way, but they, they just facilitate that interaction. Yeah, essentially they are loan originators and then it varies from place to place. In some cases, they're actually starting to get more into doing some things potentially on their own balance sheet. But in general, the idea was that it's supposed to be quite a capital-like business. However, these new rules that are coming in this week are sort of the culmination of several years of reviews and consultations by the Financial Conduct Authority who had a look into the sector as it was growing. And essentially, the first couple of years was a little bit of a wild west. And they did a big review of everyone who was active starting in 2016 and sort of announced the results last year and found a worryingly large proportion of investors didn't understand the risks properly of what they were doing. They were treating it a bit like a bank as if they were putting money in a savings account and being promised these high returns, when in fact they were acting as lenders and the company in the middle was just a middleman. And in many cases, these investors were putting in far more money than they should safely be doing. So the changes that are coming into force this week include a bunch of measures that are supposed to help protect retail investors. So it means they're going to have to enforce higher standards in how products are advertised. Investors will be banned from putting in more than 10% of their assets. And firms also have more stringent rules on professionalizing their governance and needing things like proper wind-down plans in the event that they do end up having to close. The impact of this is going to be presumably quite severe because this sector hasn't been doing very well. A lot of these businesses are not profitable, partly because they've been trying to grow, but also because it's not a great environment for them to be operating in at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting couple of months because there's been a load of things coming from different directions happening all at once that are exacerbating each other. When these rules were first announced in June, the prediction was that the bigger firms like Funding Circle and Zopa would sort of adjust to them, but smaller companies might have to give up. And we are already starting to see that happening. As I said, this review actually happened 2016 to 2018, but since the results of it were announced, the sort of need for it has become more obvious because we've already had a couple of scandals over the last year with companies like Lendy, which it seems had basically just not been doing enough due diligence on the loans that it was putting out because it wasn't taking the risk on it. So you got a huge number of them ended up going to default and now the retail investors on the hook for upwards of 100 million that they'd put into that that they're likely to lose. So over the last week, we've seen several mid to large size companies like ThinCats and Lanbay, they're in healthy positions. They've just decided to stop offering products to retail investors. It's not worth the cost and it's quite difficult to scale and attract enough people if you're trying to grow into a serious company. And then on the smaller end, Money Thing said that it's just going to wind down altogether, partly because, I mean, they say it isn't just because of the rules. They say it's more to do with the environment and the fact that things like Lendy have sort of put off investors, but I don't think the timing is a coincidence. But put this in the international context for us briefly, because the UK was the birthplace of peer-to-peer many years ago, but it's far bigger in the US, although probably not any more successful. Yeah, it's an interesting comparison. So as you said, peer-to-peer, I think, did officially start in the UK. I think Zopa just about beat a couple of the early American guys to market, but the US by dint of being a much bigger market in general for most things. It's arguably a little bit more evolved there. And I think what these changes that the FCA are introducing are likely to do is to push the UK a bit more in the direction of where the US has gone. 
So over there, you've got firms like Lending Club and Prosper that started off with a traditional retail-funded peer-to-peer model, but are now much more advanced in terms of working with financial institutions, originating large volumes of loans still, but then ending up selling them on to companies who sort of split them up into securitizations and it goes off through the financial sector. These days, the sector is increasingly referred to as marketplace lending rather than peer-to-peer because, in effect, one of the peers has been taken out. And the big companies in the UK are already going in that direction. They haven't completely abandoned retail in the way that some of the mid-sized ones are doing, but it's just going to become increasingly a small part of their business, I think. We shall see. Thank you very much for that, Nick. Let's move on to our final segment of the day and a look at Goldman Sachs. So let's go over now to New York, where we're joined by Laura Noonan. Um, Laura, this Goldman news is another interesting sign of the kind of epitome of Wall Street banks going down market, isn't it? Yeah, so the story that we wrote about this week was that United Capital, which is the wealth manager that Goldman Sachs bought earlier this year, they're preparing to launch a robo-advisory tool that would enable them, they say, to help people who have as little as $5,000 in cash to have wealth management accounts. That's a big departure for them. They typically deal in the $1 million kind of space. It's also for Goldman Sachs, it's certainly the lowest dollar way to get any kind of wealth management service from Goldman Sachs. So it is another sign of them looking to really get into pretty much every corner of the US banking market, I think, at this stage. So this obviously follows what they've done on the online retail bank side. They have the Marcus online bank, they have the Apple card, and now they're getting into an area that would have traditionally been dominated by people like Betterment. As we've discussed on the podcast before, this all comes ahead of the January Investor Day for Goldman, first ever for them. Is there a risk that with all these initiatives, especially the ones that go down market, it looks as if Goldman has lost its way? It used to be a very specialised high-end investment banking group, and it can't claim to be that anymore, exclusively. I think it can, but it doesn't want to. So the biggest thing I hear into Investor Day is that there's one camp that thinks Goldman Sachs is adopting a really scattergun approach, that they're trying all these different things. So they're trying, as well as Marcus, as well as Apple Card, they're getting into the cash management business. They're also turning their investing and lending unit into a mini Blackstone by attracting more funds from outside. Then they're also doing these kind of new things in the wealth management space. And the concern some investors raise isn't so much that Goldman is going down market and diluting the brand. I mean, that is there, but they're more fundamental concern is that instead of having a focused strategy to really target one thing and do well in it, as we've seen banks like, say, Credit Suisse and UBS do, Goldman Sachs strategy, they argue, isn't so much a strategy. It's basically 10 different bets in the hope that one of them pays off. Now, the counter argument to that by the Goldman Sachs buyers and by analysts who support the firm's leadership is that we should be thinking about all this as part of one holistic platform and that this is basically Goldman trying to leverage its brand and to leverage technology as part of a bigger plan to become integral to the financial life of a vast way of the US and also of overseas markets. So they argue that we shouldn't be thinking of all these things separately. We should be thinking of them as one holistic plan. In fairness to the people who are critical of this approach, Goldman Sachs hasn't done a terribly good job of explaining how all these pieces fit together. So what people are really looking for at that January 29th Investor Day is David Solomon, who's the new chief executive and his leaders, to really explain how all of this fits 
together and to sell to analysts and investors how this actually forms a cohesive Goldman Sachs for the future. I mean, the idea that it's not going to be this really elite trading powerhouse. Most people, I think, have pretty much bought into that and they think that that's probably a good thing because the areas Goldman excelled in in the past have become structurally more difficult in the last decade. So I think the reason we're having the investor day, the reason David's doing all these different things is basically a recognition of the fact that if Goldman just stuck to its old businesses, then it would just be in structural decline. The question mark here is whether it's trying to many different things. A final question. In terms of the acquisition model, because as you said, this robo-advisor, wealth advisor that is facilitating this new low-end wealth management service was a bought-in business. People are speculating that Goldman might try, as it spreads into lots of other areas, to do more acquisitions. In a word, do you think they are going to do that? Probably. <laughs> In several words, what might they buy, do you think? So most of the speculation is around Goldman buying some kind of retail bank presence. It's not obvious to me that they're going to do that because Goldman obviously wants to be bigger in retail. Retail is a long slog. But if you buy an existing bank that has the branches, that has the legacy cost, you kind of remove a lot of the edge Goldman has because Goldman's selling point for Marcus is we're agile, we're cheap because we can build it from a greenfield site. So that's one of the areas people talk about a lot of the idea of Goldman buying a regional US bank. I'm not totally sold on it myself. They might also buy some kind of online trading platform that I can see a little bit more easily. Then you could see acquisitions in discrete markets. So they may decide that they want to be bigger in certain geographic markets and make acquisitions there. Given in the investment banking division, they've been trying to target clients who are doing smaller deals. You might see them buy a mid-market boutique in some of the markets that they think are structurally important, somewhere like Germany, somewhere like the UK, maybe doing a little bit more in Asia, or maybe even some of these market boutiques selling to parts of middle America that Goldman's trying to break into. Well, we'll count those as your predictions for 2020, Laura. Thanks for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to David and Nick here in the studio, to Laura in New York, and also to Harold Benick, our guest from Tilburg University. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.